This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Andrew S. Curran, co-editor with Henry Louis Gates, Jr. of the illuminating new book, Who's Black and Why? A hidden chapter from the 18th century invention of race. An important book, Andrew, because it shows us where and how and why we dreamed up the imbecile idea of white supremacy. Nowhere in nature is there any proof of such a thing. And by showing it to be a fiction and not a fact, you give us the means of being rid of it. Perhaps you can begin with the structure of the book, its origins in the competition set up in France in 1741, offering a prize for the best essay on the question, what is the physical cause of the Negro's color, the quality of the Negro's hair, and the degeneration of both Negro hair and skin? Thank you, uh, Lewis. It's nice to be back here on your show after a couple of years of uh, pandemic <laughs> yeah. sabbatical. Um, and I'm happy to be talking to you about this this book today and uh, about the origins of this very strange contest, which was proposed in 1739 by the Bordeaux Academy Royal, of Sci- Royal Academy of Sciences. And I, I should say a couple words about what an academy is first for people to understand just what this meant. In the 18th century, we think of academies and universities as somewhat synonymous, but they're really very different. Uh, The university was in the business of replicating knowledge, not creating knowledge. The great research universities of the 19th century simply didn't exist at that time. The universities would produce priests and doctors and lawyers, essentially. And kind of in parallel to that, there was a whole bunch of new scientific academies that were created by enlightened, quote-unquote, thinking people, both here in North America, but first and foremost in England and in in France. And uh, the first academy in France is the Paris Academy, the Royal Academy of Science of Paris. And then uh, in 1713, the Royal Academy of Sciences of Bordeaux was founded. And this is a group of men elite men, some of the most elite men in Bordeaux, including Montesquieu, actually, half of whom were generally magistrates or very important kind of aristocrats and landholders, etc. And the second half of this 40-person group was um, composed of uh, associate members who actually had expertise in the science. We think of the Academy of Sciences as people kind of doing scientific work, but generally the real people running the show had very little scientific knowledge. They were you know, kind of gentlemen, naturalists, etc. They're like our think tanks. <laughs> They're, they are like our think tanks with fewer PhDs, I think. <laughs> and uh, um, during the you know the 1720s and 1730s in the academy, there's an increasing interest in subjects having to do with proto-anthropology, proto-ethnography, 
anatomy, physiology. This is the era when the proper study of mankind is man. And there's a shift, and this is a kind of general shift we talk about during the 18th century from kind of religious religious orientation toward a more secular orientation in so many different fields of knowledge, particularly those related to the human sciences, which really don't exist at this point. So in the 1739, finally, after dabbling with uh, these contests, and I should say the Academy uh, to make its uh, get its reputation out there would organize contests every year and a contest where they would give generally the essentially a, a gold medal worth a, an average sal- average worker's annual salary, a decent prize. And they published a call, their, their calls for papers in the uh, most prominent scientific journal of the time, the Journal of Savants, the Journal des Savants. And this would be distributed all over Europe. And in 1739, they finally got the idea to do something very specific rather than kind of general ideas of how climate affected blood, which was certainly contiguous to the idea of race or what we now know as race. They wanted to figure out, as you pointed out in reading this, what caused Africans skin and hair, the textured uh, African hair and dark skin. And this was a quandary that had been, you know, uh, floating around and, and you know, commented on for, you know, over 2,000 years. But what's significant about this is that this is science claiming the right to essentially uh, explain the origins and the conceptual difference of an entire, quote unquote, subspecies of humans. This is science taking over uh, what had been uh, the jurisdiction of biblical and theologians, uh, biblical scholars and theologians who had been explaining where people had come from by talking about uh, the biblical story of Noah and his three sons. So this is a significant shift toward a secular explanation of humankind. Now, I can go on from here. What happens is they get 16 essays from all over Europe, from uh, as far as Ireland and Sweden. And um, there was somebody actually in Virginia who uh, heard about the contest too late, who wanted to write something for them, but sent it in uh, actually too late. So we sent it into the uh, Royal Academy in, in London. And basically, the, the essays break down in five categories. And what I think is interesting about this is that we're not looking at a linear kind of story of race. Race didn't really exist in 1740. Uh, if you were talking about different human groups, you might call them nations or gens um, or uh, peoples, or you would refer to them by their ethnicities or their 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 national names: uh, Irish, Irishmen, Italians, and so on and so forth. It's important to know this: that the concept of race is an 18th century concept. I mean, it it comes into the world in the 18th century. It's a project of the Enlightenment, right? Yeah, I think that's right. It becomes a project of the Enlightenment. I think what's really interesting about this slice of history, and as I said, this is a vertical slice of history. It's a core sample of what people were thinking in 1741. There's no giant conspiracy to create race at this time in 1741. In 1741, there's, you could see of this breakdown of people and we, uh, these explanations for where Africans come from. We have environmental explanations, people citing Hippocrates, people talking about the torrid zone, people talking about the degeneration of a white prototype, which is a really interesting idea. It's a, an idea that was compatible with the Bible. It's the idea that there was an original group of white a white variety, which was also another name at the time, a white variety that once it moved into different climates would degenerate. This is actually linked to the idea of the notion of Caucasian because theoretically the Noah's Ark lands in the Caucasus. And so the original group of white people 
were Caucasian. And so it's funny that we still use this term. This is something that was coined by Blumenbach in the 1790s. Was Adam White? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because there's actually a couple of explanations here. I mean, uh, in this huge group of people, there are some people saying that Adam was actually black. And this is a heretical, a heretical notion because it implies what we would call polygenesis, the idea of separate origins for different groups of people. At this point, this is a theory which posits the idea that, that uh, different human varieties are actually different species as opposed to races or varieties. The shift that you are alluding to between uh, toward a race is really an interesting one, and we see it on the level of terminology and nomenclature. For, for a long time, people referred to different humans as varieties. Linnaeus did that. Buffon does this, B-U-F-F-O-N, the French naturalist, talks about human varieties. And this is a botanical meta- metaphor, uh, which implies a variation and hybridization and so on and so forth, and interfecundity, the, pa- the fact that people are all fertile together. Polygenesis is quite something quite different, and so is the idea of race. Race is a zoological idea. So when we move from variety to race, we're moving from the botanical to the animal, and we're talking about bloodlines, biological bloodlines. And the word race did exist, but it wasn't applied to human categories. It referred to generally kings or lines of great thoroughbred horses. These were bloodlines. And as soon as this gets applied to uh, different types of people, then we start, we start thinking of human races and of human groups in a very different way. It's also no accident that the academy is in Bordeaux because Bordeaux in the 1740s is a slave trading port. A lot of the wealth of Bordeaux is based on the French colonial slave labor plantations in the islands of the Caribbean. I mean, so there is a good deal of self-interest in trying to justify slavery. Yeah, it's interesting. I taught a class uh, in uh, a prison program here in Connecticut uh, last semester. The name of the class was Histories of Race. It was not history of race because I was telling, I was doing this kind of vertical core sample to look at the, the different ways that, that race kind of came and coalesced. And I had uh, um, this class drew primarily a group of African-American incarcerated students. It's 90%, I'd say. And there was one day when we were talking about, you know, why did they do this contest? And the, the students in the class knew about Bordeaux. And I'll get to, you know, the specifics of Bordeaux in a second. And there's a, one student there whose nickname was Duke, who decided to one day in class just channel uh, one of the aristocrats uh, who were members of the Scientific Academy. And it was one of the most chilling moments I've ever had teaching because he... He, he summarized what was going on at the time in, in a way that no one would ever summarize in 1739, but it, I think he really did capture what was going on. And he called himself the Duke of Force, who was actually the, uh, the founder of the Academy. So he had done his research on what the Academy was kind of up to. And he said, you know, well, if you walk down the streets in, in Bordeaux, you'll see a number of Africans or African slaves um, because they're, they're laboring at the ports. There are some of them who are, you know, working as servants and chefs. They've come back from the island colonies and they're working for us in the colonies. And, you know, I think it's important for us as a scientific academy to understand the liabilities of their physiology because clearly there's a reason for X, Y, and Z. And he, and he, he trotted out a whole litany of racist 
ideas. This is coming from an African-American man. And it was uh, just an astonishing kind of thing for him to kind of summarize all the kind of the work we had done in the archives in a way that you simply can't do because of the fact you are an empirical historian. But I think he really kind of summarized what was going on there. And to get to the, the specifics of Bordeaux, as I said a second ago, I mean, Bordeaux became the, the largest port in France by about 1750. You know, when it was first, you know, when the academy came into existence in, you know, the, uh, this in 1713, at that point, uh, Bordeaux was not really involved that much in the slave trade. You know, by 1728, they'd only sent out 10 expeditions, whereas the leading port at the time, Nantes, um, had already sent out 200 expeditions. Um, and sometimes, you know, you bring back three or 400 uh, captives with each expedition. So you can do the math, you know, 300 times 200, you know, becomes a lot of people. Uh, but this is really still early on. And by the 1780s, uh, Bordeaux's slave trading gets really going. They had been making so much money in other ways that they weren't as implicated in the slave trade. But by seventeen, by the 1780s, 1790s, Bordeaux had, I think, ultimately deports uh, 150,000 uh, African captives to the New World. Now, this may not sound like a lot in some ways, but if you think about 18th century demographics, it becomes quite stunning. I mean, the entire population of Bordeaux at the time was... 89 or 90,000 people. So they had deported a, a number of people that was greater than the entire population of the city. Only 350 or 375 African captives arrived here in North America total. And uh, overall, I mean, the numbers of people living in the 18th century were far smaller. I mean, there was 25 million people in France, which was an enormous amount of people. About, I think, six or seven million people in England, six or seven million people in Spain. France was really an enormous uh, country and ended up uh, deporting a total of 1.3 million African captives to the New World. They're deporting them from Africa. From Africa, that's right. They're not taking them from Bordeaux. I mean, they're in the slave trade, and, and the slave trade is ships to the west coast of Africa and then across the Atlantic to Brazil, the Caribbean, and then North America. That's right. Um, that's right. So I think I'm translating from French. Sorry about the word deporting here. So um, that's absolutely right. So the, the, the trade the trade in Bordeaux is actually interesting to, th to think about because we think of everybody doing the triangular trade. That's, what, that's what's taught in, in high schools with the kind of the, these, these big arrows. But in Bordeaux, most of the ships were actually doing back and forth, back and forth. And so by the time the, the uh, competition took place in 1739, uh, Bordeaux had 30 or 35 ships dedicated full-time to going back and forth, back and forth between the islands. And they were carrying guns, they're carrying paving stones, iron, food, wine, all sorts of different uh, uh, things to allow the colony to uh, function. And of course, they're bringing back uh, commodities such as indigo, tobacco, um, and sugar, of course, uh, back to uh, Bordeaux, where it was refined and then uh, sent back off all around Europe. So it was, a, it was an incredibly profitable thing, far less dangerous than the uh, slave trade, which uh, often would end in you know ships being taken over, disease, much more dangerous in, in a way. But still in all, um, there were a number of ships, particularly when it became very lucrative in the uh, latter part of the century, which would make the trip from Bordeaux down to Gore, Senegal, and Benin to the Slave Coast, and then back, of course, to the Caribbean. So yeah, it, 
you know, Bordeaux, um, Bordeaux, you can see the effect of the money flowing into this city. It is one of the most beautiful cities now in Europe, I believe. A lot of cities in the 18th century have were not making as much money. Uh, the buildings you can see are made out of mortar. This is a case for Paris, which has certain neighborhoods made out of stone during the 18th century, but most of it's mortar. Uh, whereas in Bordeaux, it's pretty much all stone. 5,000 beautiful stone buildings were erected uh, during the 18th century. It is just a stunning 18th century city. And one of the things we point out in the book is that if you're walking around Bordeaux, which I recommend everybody to do, if you look up on the facades of what used to be the customs house uh, at the Place de la Bourse, uh, which is a big center, uh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, semicircular arrangement of buildings uh, designed in the 1740s. This used to be the customs house and the uh, facades and over the porte cochere, you can see something called a mascaron, which is a, a bas relief uh, sculpture. And some of them were African heads, which really are a telling reminder of Bordeaux's um, relationship both to Africa and specifically to the African uh, enslaved Africans who were in the colonies producing all the wealth ultimately. All right. Well, let's continue with the development of the idea of uh, white supremacy. I mean, talk about one of the members of the Academy is Montesquieu, a most famous philosoph, author of the Persian letters in 1721 and later in the Spirit of the Laws in 1748. Yeah, I think Montesquieu is really a, a critically important person to think about in the context and the many legacies of Enlightenment. He is far more complex in some way. Actually, in some ways, he resembles uh, an early version of somebody like Jefferson in that uh, you can see universalist emancipatory power of enlightenment thought on the one hand. And on the other, you certainly see some of the most nefarious ideas of what becomes race in the 1750s, some of which were actually vehiculed, as the French would say, by him, uh, really uh, encouraged by him. So if I could kind of unpack that a tiny bit. First of all, in the spirit of the laws, 1748, uh, which is a rambling monster of a text. I, I think very few people have read it from start to finish, including, you know, hardcore Montesquieu specialists. Uh, I am not a hardcore Montesquieu specialist, but I've read a lot of Montesquieu. And it's actually hard to kind of go through the whole thing because it is rambling. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It was incredibly influential um, for, you know, the founders uh, in the United States and England. It's very, very important. But within this, there's a, there's a, a number of different things. And regarding Africans, and he doesn't call people Africans. He talks about people who are suffering from the torrid zone. So it may have been, although I couldn't find it, that Montesquieu is one of the people who actually said, let's do this contest. I mean, I was looking hard for that in the archives and didn't find it. But he was fascinated by uh, climate. And clearly the idea of degeneration is linked to climate. Anyway, so Montesquieu in, in a particular chapter on climate talks about essentially the liabilities of the warm climate body. And the fact that people who live in these climates are lazy, uh, they may have kind of cognitive failings, they're unable to kind of think in a way that allows them to function on, on a sophisticated level. And he, he kind of, he, he, he's somebody who actually hates the idea of slavery, but he says, 
You know, I have to admit that if slavery were to exist in one part of the country or, or one part of the world, or if should it be justified, it would be with these people who had these warm climate bodies. And again, as he didn't use any kind of ethnographic or racial term at this point, but it was clear what he thought. Uh, while doing research, I found um, something that was unpublished by him where he talked about the fact that a slave who had been freed in Saint-Domingue, which is what we know now know as Haiti, was just so lazy he couldn't really do anything. And this really kind of was part of Montesquieu's view that the that the African really was really had tremendous liabilities, both in terms of moral liabilities and physical liabilities. Now, at the same time, he's the first person, the first of the philosophes, uh, the philosophers of the Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment, to speak out in a vociferous fashion against slavery. And this is something we have to kind of reconcile that you could both be anti-slavery and incredibly racist in the 18th century. For us, this is hard to process. Montesquieu, in Book 15 of The Spirit of the Laws, created this list of things that he would uh, supposedly say if he were forced to justify the existence of slavery. And this is, list is very tough to teach these days because it is a laundry list of racial epithets and racial kind of ideas. Um, and at the same time, it slowly kind of rips itself to part. And it shows that Montesquieu is saying that, you know, Christians couldn't enslave Africans because if they did so, they wouldn't be Christian. Uh, he says that governments that, that talk, I mean, people who talk about the, uh, the poor treatment of Africans must be lying because our enlightened governments would never allow this to take place. So this incredible irony all the way through here, which actually added up to this kind of sarcastic uh, refutation of the justification of slavery. Later on, People would uh, criticize him for this, but at the same time, among all the people in the later 18th century after he dies in 1755, he's credited with as being the first person to actually refute slavery. So it's interesting he's got this dual legacy. And if to get back to your question about white supremacy, again, white supremacy and the emancipatory, emancipatory side of the Enlightenment are in tension throughout the different decades. The funny thing about the essays submitted to the 1741 contest is that there's really very little mention of slavery itself. It's really interesting. It's as if it was the contest was taking place in an apolitical vacuum. But uh, later on, as uh, these ideas start percolating, a lot of them actually having been um, brought up uh, in the 1741 contest, we start seeing uh, race uh, change shape and as I said, crystallize a little bit more. And if I could talk about a couple of people who are involved with this in an era before uh, really the kind of conscious creation of white supremacy, I talk about one of the, the people who writes right after the contest. And this person is uh, Georges-Louis de Clerc, Count, Count of Buffon, the famous French naturalist, so the most important naturalist between, arguably, between uh, Aristotle and Darwin, who really kind of changed the world. It's the first person who gave nature a history because natural history, the kind of natural history that we associate with Pliny was really about describing nature and Buffon said, no, no, it's time for nature to actually have a chronology, a time-based chronology to situate people and things and animals in time. And this was uh, one of the big steps toward race. Uh, Buffon himself 
was not what I would call a race maker because he wasn't doing this consciously. But certainly what he did was put forward a much more comprehensive view of degeneration. And degeneration was the term used by the Bordeaux Academy. What is the degeneration of, of black skin and black hair? And Buffon used this term as well to explain that there was this white prototype race. But rather than kind of uh, do this in a way that was uh, somehow compatible with the Bible, he really talked about this as this huge process of degeneration, people eating uh, different foods, different climates, and, and changing over time. And he said very carefully at this time, arguing against nascent polygenist thought that there was only one man on earth who became shriveled and kind of misshapen at, at, at the poles. And he's talking about hot and tots, and, and, uh, which is a very bad term for the Khoi people of South Africa. And Laplanders, also a bad term uh, for this, the Sami people of Finland. He uses these, he talks about these people as being very degenerate and also uh, Africans as kind of the extreme examples of humankind. But he also develops this within this, this much more optimistic view of human beings being just one big species with you know, thousands of varieties. So he was not putting forward these trenchant views of race. Now, to go back to the contest for a second, 1741, this is eight years before Buffon comes up with this theory. In 1741, one of the contestants put forward a classification system. And this is actually one of the things that really allows a race to come into being. You need an idea that allows people to organize all the terrible uh, stereotypes in a way that's readily accessible and understandable to a lot of people. Category, right? Category is very important. In, in categories and classification have been around since Aristotle, but something changes in the 18th century when this is being used to classify humans. The first person to classify humans was actually Francois Bernier, who was a traveler to India who came back to uh, Paris and then in 1784, he publishes this uh, short essay in the Journal des Savants, the same journal where uh, the Bordeaux Academy publishes its call for papers. In 1684, he publishes his small essay, and it's called A New Division of the Earth. And it's a new division of the Earth, not by geography or kind of names of various ethnicities. It's a breakdown by race. And he, he, taught, he uses the word race or type or species, depending how you translate the word espèce, and breaks it down into four major races, and in a very trenchant fashion. And this is the first time that somebody had ever done this. It was probably very heretical. It was, certainly was very heretical for people to, act, to ignore the biblical explanations and to talk about these kind of trenchant categories, which, separate, which suggested possibly separate origins, but certainly separate kind of biological slash political categories. The idea of classification starts um, becoming uh, much more uh, palatable and interesting to a lot of people. And Linnaeus's Systema Natura, published in 1735, is the first time that a kind of, kind of proper naturalist will classify uh, human beings and break them down into, into specific categories. And this is going to uh, be picked up on by this person inside the, uh, the, the uh, Bordeaux Academy contest. And then by the 1750s, this really will start taking off. Linnaeus will come up with much more trenchant categories. And then the people who find uh, the idea of human categories to be 
really compelling uh, uh, take over the entire argument. For a long time, the argument was simply about how do we figure out where we all came from? And after a while, it became how do we figure out how we are all truly very different in these different categories? What, what were the, the categories? Maybe there were four or five of them, right? There is lots of different. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing about uh, one of the things I find spectacularly interesting about the history of race is this. First, uh, classification didn't take off very quickly. 1684, then there's not a peep until 1735, and then 1758, and then the 1770s. So it's slow. It's, 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 it's slow. The second thing uh, is that when it does t- take off, there's a lot of debate among the various people. What's curious is that everyone believed that there were actual categories, they just didn't agree on what they were. And so there are some people who would have nine categories. Some people would have four. Some would have five. Uh, Bernier is an interesting person to look at in this case because he started off with four. And they said, well, maybe Native Americans would be five. I'm not sure. And he's going back and forth. And finally, he lumps them in with this enormous category, which goes from uh, North America all the way through Europe to North Africa. It's a category that includes Jews and, and, and uh, um, Rami people. It includes enormous, a enormous a group of people who would never have been categorized together before because of religion. But through this huge swath, it's really interesting at this one moment, he actually created a, an enormous category. And then later on, people would, would you know, of course, break that up and separate Europeans from North Africans and uh, North Africans from uh, Native Americans. And then they break it up into many, many different groups. And so, as I said, that the fascinating thing is that nobody really questioned the whole enterprise of classification because it was just so compelling. It's so intellectually seductive. No one questioned it, even though the fact that no one could agree. You think that if everyone said something different, you would realize that there may not be a truth there to begin with. Right. And it also entails assigning qualities to the categories. Yeah. So it's uh, I think that, you know, in particular, race would not uh, have happened had people not been given the ability to distinguish uh, between different skin tones. Uh, race is really associated with the fact that Europeans looked at blackness as a fundamental kind of strangeness and alterity. It also comes up uh, from the fact that something really drastic happens in the 17th and 18th century. And this is what you were talking about when you said it's so linked to the slave trade. Europeans first went to West Africa. Uh, They did so to explore. They did so certainly to trade. Um, But there weren't that many uh, Europeans, you know, living in Africa because it was the so-called white man's grave. It's very dangerous. They would stay on the ships and then maybe go to a a small fort on land. And so, you know, there wasn't that much contact. And, you know, you would get these these anecdotal uh, traders writing about Africans, but these were Africans who were autonomous, living in their own, you know, cities. Uh, they were, you know, farmers. They were producing metal sculptures. They were doing all sorts of things. These were autonomous Africans living in Africa, and of course, through various kind of xenophobic type um, observation tactics, um, there are a lot of negative things said about them, as were said about just about everybody. 
But, you know, something really happens um, when the slave trade really takes off. So in the 17th century, the slave trade really explodes and it's going along very, uh, you know, strong with the the Spanish and the Portuguese, but the French and the the French and the, and the and the Dutch and the English get involved in the 18th century, become kind of the dominant players. And at that point, the travel logs kind of change, and there are a lot more things written about Africans, not from an African perspective, but from the perspective of the colonies, and missionaries, and planters, and people were in, in uh, you know far closer contact with Africans and African captives and enslaved Africans, and there was a lots of people, tens of thousands of white Europeans in contact with black Africans. And when they wrote about them, they wrote about them from a utility-based perspective. And so they would talk about the various merits of uh, West Africans in terms of whether they're good for domestic service, are they good for working in the mines, are they good for doing this, that, and the other thing. And these traits were projected back onto Africa itself. And so when European traders are going to Africa, they're thinking about these, these uh, utility-based typologies. And ultimately, what happens is that the African race becomes synonymous with servitude and slavery from this huge shift that takes place because of the investment in chattel slavery taking place in the Caribbean. And this is you know, why it's important to talk about the fact that race comes up from a lot of different places. It comes out in you know, the scientific academy. It comes out because there are uh, Africans living in places like Bordeaux and Nantes, La Rochelle, Liverpool, and Paris, and people are kind of engaging with Africans you know, much more seriously during the 18th century. It comes from the fact that you know the uh, much of the economy is uh, now linked to African chattel slavery, and it also, I mean, race is uh, becomes a, a really Interesting justificatory type move, uh, particularly in the 1770s when the slave trade comes under attack. And this is where I think it's uh, interesting to distinguish between, you know, the early days of what we're calling white supremacy, the early days of race, and what really starts taking place in the 1770s. We're in the 1770s, 1780s, so I want you to get to Kant, okay. who, kind of, who, who kind of sums up the Enlightenment view of uh, slavery of, of, of black as a degenerate and stupid. Yes. So um, very quickly, uh, we have our contest in 1741. And as I described this as, although entirely linked in so many different ways to the slave trade, was presented as an apolitical question, hair and skin. Right. And in the 1740s and 50s, as I said, we start getting a little bit more uh, more people interested in some of the physiological specific, uh, supposed uh, anatomical uh, specifics of Africans. There's a lot of anatomists who start dissecting uh, African cadavers, looking for, for unique physical traits, which, which actually substantiate the idea of separate categories. This was actually started by somebody or encouraged by somebody who wrote for the Academy Contest and then published his book later on. In the 1760s, this takes off even more in France in particular. There's more and more anatomical type ideas and more and more kind of negative views of Africans. In the 1740s and 1750s, the idea of degeneration was actually quite loosey-goosey. And 
the uh, there was also the idea of regeneration. Some of the thinkers were saying, well, you know, African blackness is just an accident. If you take a white family and take it to Africa after 300 years, that family will be black. If you take an African family to England after 300 years, that family will be white. After 1760, you know, the idea of heredity and uh, the idea that degeneration is a one-way street really, really takes hold. And this becomes even much more, and I'm going to get to Kant, this becomes much more uh, concrete. There's a person who is really unknown. His name is Cornelius de Paw, who in 1768 writes this, this book on the Americans, but he also writes a lot about, uh, about uh, uh, Africans at this point. And he really says that Africans have physiological differences, cognitive differences. Um, you know, uh, they've got black brains, black sperm, black bile. It's a real incredibly horrible thing, he says at this point. And he says really that they are, are essentially a different species. And at this time in the 1760s and 1770s, people are really starting to say, hmm, maybe they are a separate species. Voltaire from the 1730s said that Africans were a separate species. And this, uh, what happens when the anti-slavery movement really starts taking off in the 1770s is that people who needed to justify the trade, who didn't need to justify the trade 10 years before, grab hold of all this pseudoscience and trot it out. So you not only have the naturalists who are working and publishing for a small group of people, they, you have pro-slavery thinkers, uh, uh, people who are writing for travelogues who are all talking about the reticular membrane and all these bizarre physiological things that supposedly exist in Africans and don't. And this becomes uh, a, one of the justifications of the slave trade, that they are so physiological different that they can't possibly have the same status as other humans. And so to get on to some of the other uh, race makers of the 1750s and 1760s and 1770s, there's two important people to talk about. Actually, three. If you include Voltaire, I can start with Voltaire and Hume, both of whom, both of whom put forward the notion of kind of universal history and the idea of a national character, the idea that you can, uh, there is a parallelism between kind of skin color, intelligence, and they both are actually polygenists, say that they are saying that Africans are a separate species with a separate origin, which is very heretical at the time because you're necessarily refuting the Bible. Kant and Blumenbach are going to inherit all sorts of different things. They inherit the idea of classification from Linnaeus and from Bernier, particularly from Linnaeus' 1758 edition of the Systema Natura, where he also does another big breakdown of, of humankind. But Kant and Blumenbach want to rationalize this in a way. Blumenbach is actually, again, an interesting, ambiguous figure because on the one hand, he will actually become an abolitionist and who somebody who refutes kind of real differences among different human varieties, types, or races. But at the same time, he, he is the father of physical anthropology. And so he is going to do studies on different skulls, which allow people to start thinking about the the divine proportion of white skin skulls, I'm sorry, white skulls compared to African skulls. And, and he's also going to be taking uh, note of some of the supposed physiological discoveries by the anatomists as a justification for actual real racial categories. But he doesn't talk about kind of differences in intelligence, whereas Kant from the 1760s on it seems to really have a bee in his bonnet and really 
has uh, horrific things to say about uh, Africans, writing from Germany, where uh, as if he'd been kind of terribly uh, uh, hurt by them in some ways. So in the, in the 1760s, he talks about the fact that uh, you know being black from head to toe is essentially proof of stupidity. He does so in, in the context of refuting the idea that this black carpenter in Martinique could have possibly said something brilliant because uh, a, a in a travelogue, somebody said this African says something brilliant, and Kant says impossible because he's black. And he also comes up with the first real phys- philosophical justification for the categories of race. He's really the first kind of major uh, thinker uh, after Blumenbach to do something with race that no one had done before. Uh, you know, the problem with the idea of variety in a race is that they necessarily contradict each other. This idea of all these different varieties, how can you have a category if you have different varieties? And Kant said, well, you can figure that out because if you take a white person and a black person and together they produce a child of mixed race, a mulatto, as he would call it, that's proof of the first two categories as being separate because they produce a third thing. And so he does this kind of philosophical trick to justify this. And so he's you know, using philosophy as uh, one of his weapons to kind of create these categories. And in addition, he really links uh, whiteness to intelligence, to civilization, and so on and so forth, and uh, being black to the exact opposite, and with no hope of redemption. Both. President Wilson and and, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt believed in white supremacy. We're still living with this today, and and it it has no real basis anywhere in in nature. I think that's right. Um, There is no basis for the notion of race in nature at all. Um, And certainly my dear friend and colleague, Henry Louis Gates Jr., has done a lot of work uh, really demonstrating conclusively in a kind of a popular forum that, you know, 99.9% of who we are has nothing to do with these kind of superficial kind of uh, traits, yeah. really. You know, I'm doing a new new book on this now from a, from a more popular perspective, and I'm calling it The Race Makers. Because, and I'm really thinking about a race as a, as a virus. It's a virus that's cooked up in a European lab and it just takes off and it has really infected us all. It has even infected, uh, infected the most uh, enlightened anti-slavery thinkers were all grappling with this. It infected the people who were on the receiving end of race. They internalized these categories because the categories themselves, which are a product of the colonial world, etc., are are very compelling. It is just a really easy way of organizing ethnographic material in a way that can be deployed for nefarious purposes. And it's just been so useful to various governments and and groups and institutions for, for so, so long. Well, listen, it's just been a pleasure talking to you, Andrew. Uh, and I've been talking to Andrew Curran, co-editor of Henry Louis Gates Jr. with his new wonderful book, Who's Black and Why? A Hidden Chapter from the 18th Century Invention of Race. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, very much. Thank you so much, too. It's been a pleasure. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.